appreciate Dwayne sharing that story about his, his family legacy. And it's fun when you hear a family legacy and you just think, man, that fits. That fits. Because he talks about uh, you get to choose in your life whether to respond to things positively or negatively. You go ask David how he's doing on a day that he's having a little bit of a bad day. And he'll say, I could complain about it, but what good would it do? And you hear that legacy and you hear that story and the power of story being handed down from generation to generation. And we're in this series, the mission of God, Missio Dei is the Latin way of saying it, Missio Dei, the mission of God. And we're talking about it so much because at Northwest, we believe that God is on a mission. We believe that God's not done with, with what he's doing in the world, that God is on a mission, and that that mission is more than to just seek and save the lost. It includes that. But that that mission is, as he talks about in Romans 8, to redeem the entire creation. That the entire universe will be set free from its bondage to death and decay. And, and that that's going to happen through the Spirit working through his people. And last week we talked about the, the power of story and in first, first Peter where Peter writes and he says, listen, always be ready to get an answer for the reason, the hope that you have. Know your story and share your story. And, and last week uh, we were challenged to think about what your story is in light of God's mission being more than just seeking and saving the lost. If God's mission is to redeem and restore the entire creation, your story is more than just I once was lost but now I'm found. Your story includes the spiritual gifts that God gives you. Your story includes the difference that you make in other people's lives. It includes uh, times of crisis and difficulty that God brought you through. And you look back on now and you say, man, I, God got me through that. And that's part of my story. And you pull all of that together and you begin offering that creatively. Because God is a creating God and he created us as a creative people. Creatively seeking new ways to tell that story. And so the mission of God, if it were a book, the pages of that book are written on the lives of Christians over hundreds of years. And that your life is one of those pages in God's story. Do you, do you know your story? Have you told your story? Have you shared your story? Because God's on a mission and he's going to do it through us. And if we don't show up knowing our story and willing to share it, willing to write God's mission in our lives as we live it out with people that we like and people we don't, people that are like us and people that are different, people in the church and people out of the church, then God's mission will not take place in the world. We are plan A. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross and was resurrected and his spirit comes to us. He says, look, I'm going to do greater things through you, my people. I'm still on a mission, and my mission happens through you. And so the challenge for us this year is to look at what is God seeking to do in the world, and anywhere we see God moving in mission, we're going to get on board. We're going to go with God to that place, to that person, to do that thing, say that thing, make that difference. We're a church on mission. You know, the old vision of, of what it means uh, of, to be a Christian the old vision, and that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. I'm trying to shift this vision from older to new. And the old vision was often something like, uh, I believe and I am baptized so I can be saved. Now that I'm saved, my job is to go to church. It's to be involved, to stay away from temptation and be faithful until I die and go to heaven to be with Jesus. Now, is all of that absolutely true? Yes. yes. Is all of that gospel? Yes. 
And yet what we're going to look at today is, again, continuing this idea of Jesus having a vision that when his kingdom showed up, it would do much, much more than be saved and then wait to go to heaven. That it's going to make a difference and an impact in the lives of the people who are saved and in the lives of anyone who comes in contact with saved people. That we're supposed to change not only lives, but we're supposed to change the world. Jesus repeatedly hints at this kind of a difference that the kingdom of God will make and the difference the church will make if we just catch up with God and what he's doing. Matthew 6, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus uh, is talking to his apostles about how to pray. So Matthew 6, he, he says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. He says, truly, I tell you, they've received their gift in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. In verse 9, he starts this prayer. He gives this prayer as a model to his apostles and something that they can learn from and what prayer can be like and should be like. And as he starts this prayer, it has to be the most repeated prayer in the history of Christianity. Jesus begins it with this bold statement. This bold expectation, and I want you to hear how his prayer begins. This then, Jesus says, is how you should pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says, look, this is the, this is the beginning of the prayer. This is how you pray. God, holy is your name. And your will be done when your kingdom comes. Your will be done when your kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. And there suddenly becomes this incredible expectation that when the kingdom comes, and that kingdom is initiated in the crucifixion and the resurrection, when the Spirit comes on the apostles and Pentecost, the kingdom is here, and the kingdom is the church. What Jesus expects is when his church shows up, that God's will starts to be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, there's not a lot of hungry people, right? In heaven, there's not a lot of people that need clothes, and there's not a lot of people that are lonely. And Jesus expects and prays and teaches his followers to pray that when the church shows up, that hungry people start getting fed. And naked people start getting clothing, and people that are alone start getting visitors and relationships. Jesus' prayer is that the church will start to change the world to be transformed into what God wants it to be. That's a bigger vision than we've often caught as Christians. It's a bigger vision than church attendance and waiting until we go to heaven, and that's true and that matters. But this vision is that when the church shows up, People's lives get blessed and changed and transformed, and the world looks different because God's will is being done here just like it's being done in heaven. It's a different kind of job description for those of us who claim to believe in Jesus Christ. And it's not just there. Uh, earlier in the same sermon, Jesus uh, in Matthew 5 and verse 13 he says, listen, you are the salt of the earth. And he's talking to anyone who will take his teachings, put them into practice. 
He says, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And I know how much flavor matters because I tried to make mashed potatoes the other night. And my kids wouldn't even let me put them on their plate. All right? Flavor matters. A little bit of salt goes a long ways. Easy. The potatoes were not that bad. Uh, they are all still in the fridge. No one's touched them in four days, so maybe they were. Salt matters. You put a little bit of salt on something, and it completely changes it. Completely changes it. Jesus says, listen, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? We've got a problem when we have a church that has got too much internally focused that's inside of its walls. And I don't mean Northwest. I mean the church at large that's so internally focused that we're not salting anything. That our neighborhoods exist without any knowledge of who we are and what we're doing. That we're not building bridges into their lives and there's not bridges that they can cross to come into ours. We've lost our saltiness. And Jesus in his sermon says, listen, if your church is making no difference in the world around it, you're not salt. And if a salt has lost its saltiness, the only thing it's good for is to be walked on. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It's all too easy right now. One of the most popular kind of arguments that atheists have against Christians today uh, is that uh, if, if this is what the people of God look like, then I don't want to believe in that kind of a God. What Jesus believes is that when the kingdom shows up, that we're going to come to the light of the world in such a way that when we let our light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That as a result of our saltiness and our light that shines, that we let it shine on the hill in such a way that it happens not through right thinking, but through good deeds that make a difference in the life of others. That when we as God's people do that, that other people in the world might say, I don't know if I believe in their God, but I at least believe that they do, and I'll give credit and glory to God on account of what I've seen in his people. It's a different kind of job description. It's a different kind of vision. And it's not just in the Sermon on the Mount. This is part of how Jesus expects the church to show up and the kingdom to make a difference. And so in, in Matthew 13, he's, he's again teaching Verse 31, he says, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. And so here's, here's both the good news and the challenge. As Jesus is teaching so often, show up. Here's the good news. If you're thinking, I'm just me, what difference can I make? Jesus agrees. 
You're just a mustard seed until you become a kingdom person. And then suddenly the kingdom person who's the mustard seed gets planted and grows into this tree, a plant that's so large that even the birds can come and rest on its branches. The good news is that even with all of your weaknesses and your, your inadequacies and your fears and the things that you worry about and your anxieties, the things that you think you're not capable of, with you, if you'll just step out in faith, God will grow you, little mustard seed, into a tree. Then there's bad news, right? That means we're out of excuses. <laughs> means that all the reasons that I want to tell God that he should choose somebody and it should be someone more qualified than me, God says, oh, you feel like you're just a mustard seed? I've got good news about mustard seeds in the kingdom of God. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all, the, all through the dough. And if you worked with yeast and you work it through, you just put a little bit in and the bread starts to grow and, and, and it spills out and it just can get in 60 pounds. This is a huge amount of flour, a little bit of yeast in that batch, and it's going to grow and grow. And it works through the whole dough. It doesn't just stay where you put it. It gets all through it and it grows into something incredible. And it blesses many who come to the bread to eat. Jesus doesn't envision his followers becoming saved people who then come together to sing and learn and study and not make a difference. Over and over again, what Jesus teaches is, when my kingdom shows up filled with my people, filled with my spirit, this world is going to get salty, filled with light. It's going to have mustard plants growing all over the place, and yeast is going to get worked all through the dough. They're going to make a difference, and this earth is going to start looking like heaven because God's will is going to be done by my people. What is God's mission, and whatever it is, how do I step up and show up to be part of it so that God's will can be done in this world? Because he wants to do it through me, and he wants to do it through you. As I've been thinking about this week's lesson over the past couple of weeks, I've also been thinking about one of our country's great preachers. Uh, one of the preachers of our country who, who maybe more than any other preacher in our country's history had the ability to do what we're talking about this month. He had the ability to say, I believe that God has a vision for our world that's different from the world I see and the world that I live in. Uh, he would say, I, I believe that God has created this world to be different than it currently is. And if I believe that that's true, I'm not only going to personally step up and be involved in transforming this world to look more like heaven. I'm going to call everyone that I can to join me in that journey. Tomorrow in our country, uh, we remember Martin Luther King Day. We celebrate the, the birth, the life, uh, and the ministry of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. And I say ministry because we so often lose sight of the fact that Martin Luther King, Jr. was more than a, an American civic leader. He was more than someone who would stand up and give uh, good speeches. He was more than one uh, who would be a leader uh, in our country and in cities and bringing about social change. Uh, he was first and foremost 
a preacher. Most of his speeches were not given at town halls. His speeches were given behind pulpits. Most of his marches and movements didn't start at the, at the county fair. They started in the auditoriums of churches. His vision wasn't rooted in what he wanted for himself or others. His vision was rooted in his understanding of the mission of God, of who God was, who he was, and who all of us are, and the difference that that makes. And he started preaching, and people started hearing it, and they started catching a vision, and it wasn't his vision that he was proclaiming, it was God's vision. All people are created equal. That's a God thing. All people are made in God's image. It's a God thing. It's a scripture thing. The last week or two, thinking about this, I, I've got, uh, I went and got a book. Uh, the book is called Strength to Love. It's written by Martin Luther King Jr. And, and what it really is, is 13 of his sermons that he preached uh, in the early 1960s, uh, early uh, in his kind of movements, uh, and it's 13 of his most popular sermons. It was published in 1963, 55 years ago. And he took 13 of those sermons, and, and he, he edited them down, and he put them in book form, and he released them in this book, and the book is called Strength to Love. Strength to Love. And I've been reading these sermons, and I've just been, I've been gripped by these sermons. Uh, as I've read them, I keep thinking over and over again, this is what I'm talking about. This is what I'm praying about. This is what I'm reading about in, in Scripture, that God has a mission and that God has a vision and he desires for his people to get on board with that mission and that vision. And what I want to do today, as I've been thinking about, I, I want to share some of this with you. I want you to get to see some of what he's saying as an illustration of what it can look like when Christians catch God's mission and vision and start sharing it with others and living it out in the world, how you can become salt and you can become light and you can become yeast and we start making heaven look, uh, heaven come down and break through into the world that we live in. And, and as I started going through these sermons, I thought, well, maybe I'll just kind of take bits and pieces and work them into what I want to say uh, but it became really clear to me that to do that would, would really cause some of these things to lose their power and their effectiveness. Uh, that you needed to hear them, uh, admittedly in my voice, but you needed to hear them in his words. Uh, what I want to do this morning is I want to actually share with you some, some excerpts. They're not in their entirety. Excerpts from two, uh, one, hopefully two, of, of Martin Luther King Jr.'s sermons. And I want you to hear the voice of a man who catches God's mission and is getting on board and is calling everyone who will listen to join him. Um, so with that being said, I, I want you to hear some of his thoughts, some of his words, and, and knowing uh, that he is a preacher and that these come from Scripture. In fact, this first sermon that I want to read to you from a little bit is called The Transformed Nonconformist. And it comes from Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Romans 12 and verse 2, uh, the Apostle Paul writes, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not conform is difficult advice in a generation when crowd pressures have unconsciously conditioned our minds and feet to move to the rhythmic drumbeat of the status quo. Many voices and forces urge us to choose the path of least resistance and bid us never to fight for an unpopular cause and never to be found in a pathetic minority of two or three. In spite of this prevailing tendency to conform, we as Christians have a mandate to be nonconformists. The Apostle Paul, who knew the inner realities of the Christian faith, counseled, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We are called to be people of conviction, not conformity, of moral nobility, not social respectability. We are commanded to live differently and according to a higher loyalty. Every true Christian is a citizen of two worlds, the world of time and the world of eternity. We are paradoxically in the world and yet not of the world. To the Philippian Christians, Paul wrote, We are a colony of heaven. They understood what he meant, for their city of Philippi was a Roman colony. When Rome wished to Romanize a province, she established a small colony of people who lived by Roman law and Roman customs and who, though in another country, held fast to their Roman allegiance. This powerful, creative minority spread the gospel of Roman culture. Although the analogy is imperfect, the Roman settlers lived within a framework of injustice and exploitation, that is colonialism, the apostle does point to the respectability of Christians to imbue, to bring into being an unchristian world with the ideals of a higher and more noble order. Living in the colony of time, we are ultimately responsible to the empire of eternity. As Christians, we must never surrender our supreme loyalty to any time-bound custom or earth-bound idea, for at the heart of our universe is a higher reality, God and his kingdom of love to which we must be conformed. When an affluent society would coax us to believe that happiness consists in the size of our automobiles, the impressiveness of our houses, and the expensiveness of our clothes, Jesus reminds us a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. When we would yield to the temptation of a world rife with sexual promiscuity and gone wild with a philosophy of self-expression, Jesus tells us that whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. When we refuse to suffer for righteousness and choose to follow the path of comfort rather than conviction, we hear Jesus say, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we allow the spark of revenge in our souls to flame up in hate towards our enemies, Jesus teaches, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Everywhere and at all times, the love ethic of Jesus is a radiant light revealing the ugliness of our stale conformity. 
55 years ago. Quotes Longfellow, who said, in this world, a man must either be an anvil or a hammer, meaning that he's either a molder of society or is molded by society. Who doubts that today most people are anvils and are shaped by the patterns of the majority? Or to change the figure, most people, and Christians in particular, are thermometers that record or register the temperature of majority opinion, not thermostats that transform and regulate the temperature of society. We need to recapture the gospel glow of the early Christians who were nonconformist in the truest sense of the word and refused to shape their witness according to the mundane patterns of the world. Willingly, they sacrificed fame, fortune, and life itself in behalf of a cause they knew to be right. Quantitatively small, they were qualitatively giants. Their powerful gospel put an end to such barbaric evils as infanticide and bloody gladiatorial contests. Finally, they captured the Roman Empire for Jesus Christ. Gradually, however, the church became so entrenched in wealth and prestige that it began to dilute the strong demands of the gospel and to conform to the ways of the world. And ever since the church has been a weak and ineffectual trumpet making uncertain sounds, if the church of Jesus Christ is to regain once more its power, message, and authentic ring, it must conform only to the demands of the gospel. Honesty impels me to admit that transformed nonconformity, which is always costly and never altogether comfortable, may mean walking through the valley of the shadow of suffering, losing a job, or having a six-year-old daughter ask, Daddy, why do you have to go to jail so much? But we are gravely mistaken to think that Christianity protects us from the pain and agony of mortal existence. Christianity has always insisted that the cross we bear precedes the crown we wear. To be a Christian, one must take up his cross with all of its difficulties and agonizing and tragedy-packed content and carry it until the very cross leaves its marks upon us and redeems us to that more excellent way that comes only through suffering. In these days of worldwide confusion... There is a dire need for men and women who will courageously do battle for truth. We must make a choice. Will we continue to march to the drumbeat of conformity and respectability? Or will we, listening to the beat of a more distant drum, move to its echoing sounds? Will we march only to the music of time? Or will we, risking criticism and abuse, march to the soul-saving music of eternity? More than ever before, we are today challenged by the words of yesterday. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. May we today be reminded by the voices of the past 
of the need to constantly be transformed by Christ and not conforming to this world. As I've been thinking about and praying about this, this lesson, I've hoped that it will illustrate what we've been talking this, about this month, the mission of God and our joining with God in that mission in a way that's both powerful and a way that's timely. I hope tomorrow you're going to see on social media, you're going to see on TV and hear about it on the radio. Uh, some of you are going to be off of work uh, to remember and honor the birthday uh, of a man who was first and foremost created in the image of God and who believed that we all were. And that because of that, we were created equal. And he looked at the world that was around him and he said, this world does not reflect that spiritual reality. And he began to call everyone around him to this idea of being transformed nonconformist. That we're going to be transformed by Christ and not by the world. And anywhere we see the world behaving in a way that God doesn't want it to, we're going to step up and make the world be in God's image. We're going to be the people who, with, with the Spirit working in us and through us, are going to begin bringing God's redemption to the entire creation. We're going to be salt. We're going to be light. We're going to be yeast. We're going to be doing the work of bringing heaven into this physical space. But the way that that happens is through God working through me and through you. And if we don't ever get out of the, these chairs and outside of these walls and begin seeing what God's doing and get on board, it's not going to happen. And if we don't begin learning what our story is and, and letting God write on my page his mission and his reality and what he wants to be breaking into this world, then how is this world ever going to read that story? A lot of people today will say I, Christians live by a book that's 2,000 year old. Uh, that's true. But that book is still being written, and it's being written in my life and your life. And if we're not telling that story too, then they've got a fair point. God's not dead. He is alive. God is not asleep. He is active. God is not far. He is near, and he wants to make a difference. And Jesus expects that when his people in his kingdom show up, that we're going to be salt and light and yeast and mustard seeds and change the world. We've got a job to do. I hope that today when you hear sermons declaring all people created equal by God in the image of God, you hear the echo of Jesus' prayer, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I hope that when you think about Paul's instructions to resist conforming to the pattern of this world and to instead be transformed by Jesus Christ in the renewing of your minds, and you consider Dr. King's words on what that means in a world that doesn't look like it should, that you see salt and light. I hope that, that when you hear these, these sermons in this series, and, and when we lay challenges out in front of you this year, and we're calling you to action, that what you see is an opportunity to be a mustard seed getting planted so that you can grow into a plant. Because God's got great things in store for those of us who are willing to hear, who are willing to join, who are willing to see, and who are willing to pursue his mission in the world. And let me just tell you today, if you're not part of this kingdom 
then what you're doing doesn't matter. At least, it doesn't have eternal significance. Because there is nothing that you can do in this world apart from the kingdom of God and allegiance to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior that can have eternal significance. Everything else gets burned up in the end. All that matters is what you do for the kingdom of God. And if you're not part of that kingdom and you want your story to have an eternal significance, then why don't you come forward today or come meet with us during the week or talk to someone that's sitting next to you and say, I want to be a part of this kingdom that's transforming the world to be made into the image of God so that earth starts to look like heaven, so that my page is part of an eternal story. Because if you're not doing that, what are you doing? And if today's the day that you start writing that story, come forward as we stand and sing.